listening to Nightlight. Yes, you're with Nightlight, and this is part three of this special Easter edition of Nightlight, in which I'm reading you stories from Luke chapter 22 through 24, followed by the insights and lessons drawn from those stories by J.C. Ryle. Well, we're starting part three with the crucifixion, and if you're following along in your Bible, then we're beginning at Luke chapter 23, verse 26. A sound bite with nightlight. And as they led him away, they laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country. And on him they laid the cross, that he might bear it after Jesus. And there followed him a great company of people, and of women which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? And there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him, in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew, this is the King of the Jews. We ought to notice in this passage our Lord's words of prophetical warning. We read that he said to the women who followed him as he was being led away to Calvary, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me but weep for yourselves and for your children. For the days are coming when they will say, Fortunate indeed are the women who are childless, the wombs that have not borne a child, and the breasts that have never nursed. These words must have sounded peculiarly terrible to the ears of a Jewish woman. To her, it was always a disgrace to be childless. The idea of a time coming when it would be a blessing to have no children must have been a new and fearsome thought to her mind. And yet within 50 years, this prediction of Christ was literally fulfilled. The siege of Jerusalem by the Roman army under Titus brought down on all the inhabitants of the city the most horrible sufferings from famine and pestilence that can be conceived. Women are reported to have actually eaten their own children during the siege for lack of food. Upon none 
did the last of judgments sent upon the Jewish nation fall so heavily as upon the wives, the mothers, and the little children. Let us beware of supposing that the Lord Jesus holds out to man nothing but mercy, pardon, love, and forgiveness. Beyond all doubt, he is plenteous in mercy. There is mercy with him like a mighty stream. He delights in mercy. But we must never forget that there is justice with him as well as mercy. There are judgments preparing for the impenitent and the unbelieving. There is wrath revealed in the gospel for those who harden themselves in wickedness. The same cloud which was bright to Israel was dark to the Egyptians. The same Lord Jesus who invites the laboring and heavy laden to come to him and rest declares most plainly that unless a man repents, he will perish, and that he who believes not shall be damned. Luke 13.3, Mark 16.16 16. The same Saviour who now holds out his hands to the disobedient and gainsaying will come one day in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that know not God and obey not the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 Let these things sink down into our hearts. Christ is indeed most gracious, but the day of grace must come to an end at last. An unbelieving world will find at length, as Jerusalem did, that there is judgment with God, as well as mercy. No wrath will fall so heavily as that which has been long accumulating and heaping up. We ought to notice, for another thing in this passage, our Lord's words of gracious intercession. We read that when he was crucified, his first words were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. His own racking agony of body did not make him forget others. The first of his seven sayings on the cross was a prayer for the souls of his murderers. His prophetical office he had just exhibited by a remarkable prediction. His kingly office he was about to exhibit soon by opening the door of paradise to the penitent thief. His priestly office he now exhibited by interceding for those who crucified him. Father, he said, forgive them. The fruits of this wonderful prayer will never be fully seen until the day when the books are opened and the secrets of all hearts are revealed. We have probably not the least idea how many of the conversions to God at Jerusalem which took place during the first six months after the crucifixion were the direct reply to this marvelous prayer. Perhaps this prayer was the first step towards the penitent thief's repentance. Perhaps it was one means of affecting the centurion who declared our Lord a righteous man and the people who smote their breasts and returned. Perhaps the 3,000 converted on the day of Pentecost, foremost it may be at one time among our Lord's murderers, owed their conversion to this very prayer. 
The day will declare it. There is nothing secret that shall not be revealed. This only we know, that the Father hears the Son always. John 11:42. We may be sure that this wondrous prayer was heard. Let us see in our Lord's intercession for those who crucified him one more proof of Christ's infinite love to sinners. The Lord Jesus is indeed most pitiful, most compassionate, most gracious. None are too wicked for him to care for. None are too far gone in sin for his almighty heart to take interest about their souls. He wept over unbelieving Jerusalem. He heard the prayer of the dying thief. He stopped under the tree to call the tax collector Zacchaeus. He came down from heaven to turn the heart of the persecutor Saul. He found time to pray for his murderers, even on the cross. Love like this is a love that passes knowledge. The vilest of sinners have no cause to be afraid of applying to a savior like this. If we want warrant and encouragement to repent and believe, the passage before us surely supplies enough. Finally, let us see in our Lord's intercession a striking example of the Spirit which should reign in the hearts of all his people. Like him, let us return good for evil and blessing for cursing. Like him, let us pray for those who evil entreat us and persecute us. The pride of our hearts may often rebel against the idea. The fashion of this world may call it foolish to behave in such a way. But let us never be ashamed to imitate our divine master. The man who prays for his enemies shows the mind that was in Christ and will have his reward. Inspiring you to draw closer to God, you're listening to Nightlight. Chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. The verses we have now read 
deserve to be printed in letters of gold. They have probably been the salvation of myriads of souls. Multitudes will thank God to all eternity that the Bible contains this story of the penitent thief. We see, firstly, in the history before us, the sovereignty of God in saving sinners. We're told that two malefactors were crucified together with our Lord, one on his right hand and the other on his left. Both were equally near to Christ. Both saw and heard all that happened during the six hours that he hung on the cross. Both were dying men and suffering acute pain. Both were alike wicked sinners and needed forgiveness. Yet one died in his sins as he had lived, hardened, impenitent and unbelieving. The other repented, believed, cried to Jesus for mercy and was saved. A fact like this should teach us humility. We cannot account for it. We can only say, even so, Father, for so it seems good in your sight. Matthew 11:26. How is it that under precisely the same circumstances, one man is converted and another remains dead in sins? Why the very same sermon is heard by one man with a complete indifference and sends another home to pray and seek Christ? Why the same gospel is hidden to one and revealed to another? All these are questions we cannot possibly answer. We only know that it is so, and that it is useless to deny it. Our own duty is clear and plain. We are to make a diligent use of all the means which God has appointed for the good of souls. There is no necessity that any one should be lost. There's no such thing as a decreed damnation in the Bible. The offers of the gospel are wide, free, and general. God's sovereignty was never meant to destroy man's responsibility. One thief was saved that no sinner might despair, but only one that no sinner might presume. We see, secondly, in this history, the unvarying character of repentance unto salvation. This is a point in the penitence thief's story which is fearfully overlooked. Thousands look at the broad fact that he was saved in the hour of death and look no further. They do not look at the distinct and well-defined evidences of repentance which fell from his lips before he died. Those evidences deserve our closest attention. The first notable step in the thief's repentance was his concern about his companion's wickedness in reviling Christ. Do you not fear God, he said, seeing you are in the same condemnation? The second step was a full acknowledgement of his own sin. We, indeed, are just in condemnation. We receive the due reward of our deeds. The third step was an open confession of Christ's innocence. This man has done nothing amiss. The fourth step was faith in Christ's power and will to save him. He turned to a crucified sufferer and called him 
Lord and declared his belief that he had a kingdom. The fifth step was prayer. He cried to Jesus when he was hanging on the cross and asked him even then to think upon his soul. The sixth and last step was humility. He begged to be remembered by our Lord. He mentions no great thing, enough for him if he is remembered by Christ. These six points should always be remembered in connection with the penitent thief. His time was very short for giving proof of his conversion, but it was time well used. Few dying people have ever left behind them such good evidences as were left by this man. Let us beware of a repentance without evidences. Thousands, it may be feared, are every year going out of the world with a lie in their right hand. They fancy they will be saved because the thief was saved in the hour of death. They forget that if they would be saved as he was, they must repent as he repented. The shorter a man's time is, the better must be the use he makes of it. The nearer he is to death when he first begins to think, the clearer must be the evidence he leaves behind. Nothing, it may be safely laid down as a general rule, nothing is so thoroughly unsatisfactory as a deathbed repentance. We see, thirdly, in this history, the amazing power and willingness of Christ to save sinners. It is written that he is able to save to the uttermost, Hebrews 7.25. If we search the Bible through, from Genesis to Revelation, we shall never find a more striking proof of Christ's power and mercy than the salvation of the penitent thief. The time when the thief was saved was the hour of our Lord's greatest weakness. He was hanging in agony on the cross. Yet even then he heard and granted a sinner's petition and opened to him the gate of life. Surely this was power. The man whom our Lord saved was a wicked sinner at the point of death with nothing in his past life to recommend him and nothing notable in his present position but a humble prayer Yet even he was plucked like a brand from the burning. Surely this was mercy. Do we want proof that salvation is of grace and not of works? We have it in the case before us. The dying thief was nailed hand and foot to the cross. He could do literally nothing for his own soul. Yet even he, through Christ's infinite grace, was saved. No one ever received such a strong assurance of his own forgiveness as this man. Do we want proof that sacraments and ordinances are not absolutely needful to salvation and that men may be saved without them when they cannot be had? We have it in the case before us. The dying thief was never baptized, belonged to no visible church, and never received the Lord's Supper, but he repented and believed and therefore he was saved. Let these things sink down into our hearts. Christ never changes, 
The way of salvation is always one and the same. He lives who saved the penitent thief. There is hope for the vilest sinner if he will only repent and believe. We see, lastly, in the history before us, how near a dying believer is to rest and glory. We read that our Lord said to the malefactor in reply to his prayer, Today shall you be with me in paradise. That word, today, contains a body of divinity. It tells us that the very moment a believer dies, his soul is in happiness and in safekeeping. His full redemption is not yet come. His perfect bliss will not begin before the resurrection morning. But there is no mysterious delay, no season of suspense, no purgatory between his death and a state of reward. In the day that he breathes his last, he goes to paradise. In the hour that he departs, he is with Christ. Philippians 1.23 Let us remember these things when our believing friends fall asleep in Christ. We must not sorrow for them as those who have no hope. While we are sorrowing, they are rejoicing. While we are putting on our mourning and weeping at their funerals, they are safe and happy with their Lord. Above all, let us remember these things if we are true Christians in looking forward to our own deaths. To die is a solemn thing, but if we die in the Lord, we need not doubt that our death will be gain. Inspiring you to love and serve Jesus more. You're listening to Night Light. Luke chapter 23, verses 44 to 49. And it was about the sixth hour. And there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And all the people that came together to that sight, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned. And all his acquaintance and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off beholding these things. Let us observe in these verses the miraculous signs which accompanied our Lord's death on the cross. We're told that there was a darkness over all the earth for three hours. The sun was darkened and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. It was fit and right that the attention of all around Jerusalem should be arrested in a marked way when the great sacrifice for sin was being offered and the Son of God was dying. There were signs and wonders wrought in the sight of all Israel when the law was given on Sinai. There were signs and wonders in like manner when the atoning blood of Christ was shed on Calvary. There was a sign 
for the unbelieving world. The darkness at midday was a miracle which would compel men to think. There was a sign for the professing church and ministers of the temple, the tearing of the curtain which hung between the holy place and the holy of holies was a miracle which would strike awe into the heart of every priest and Levite in Jewry. Signs like these on special occasions, let us remember, are a part of God's ways in dealing with man. He knows the desperate stupidity and unbelief of human nature. He sees it necessary to arouse our attention by miraculous works when he brings in a new dispensation. He thus compels men to open their eyes, whether they will or not, and to hear his voice for a little season. He has done so frequently in the days that are past. He did so when he gave the law. He did so in the passage before us when he brought in the gospel. He will do so once more when Christ comes the second time. He will show a sneering, unbelieving world that he can suspend the laws of nature at his pleasure and alter the framework of creation as easily as he called the earth into being. He will yet fulfill his words, Yet once more I will shake not the earth only, but also the heavens. The moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion, Hebrews 12.26, Isaiah 24.23. Let us observe, secondly, in these verses, the remarkable words which our Lord spoke when he died. We read that when he had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having thus said, he gave up the spirit. There is a depth of meaning, no doubt, in these words, which we have no line to fathom. There was something mysterious about our Lord's death, which made it unlike the death of any mere man. He who spoke the words before us, we must carefully remember, was God as well as man. His divine and human nature were inseparably united. His divine nature, of course, could not die. He says himself, I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. John 10:17 and 18 Christ died, not as we die when our hour is come, not because he was compelled and could not help dying, but voluntarily and of his own free will. There is a sense, however, in which our Lord's words supply a lesson to all true Christians. They show us the manner in which death should be met by all God's children. They afford an example which every believer should strive to follow. Like our Master, we should not be afraid to confront the King of Terrors, we should regard him as a vanquished enemy whose sting has been taken away by Christ's death. We should think of him as a foe who can hurt the body for a little season, but after that he has no more that he can do. 
We should await his approaches with calmness and patience and believe that when flesh fails, our soul will be in good keeping. This was the mind of dying Stephen. Lord Jesus, he said, receive my spirit. This was the mind of Paul, the aged, when the time of his departure was at hand. He says, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. Hebrews 7.59, 2 Timothy 1.12 Happy indeed are those who have a last end like this. Let us observe lastly in these verses the power of conscience in the case of the centurion and the people who saw Christ died. We are told that the centurion praised God saying certainly this was a righteous man. We are told that the people who had come together to the site smote their breasts and went away. We know not exactly the nature of the feelings here described. We know not the extent to which they went or the afterfruit which they brought forth. One thing at all events is clear. The Roman officer felt convinced that he had been superintending an unrighteous action and crucifying an innocent person. The gazing crowds were pierced to the heart by a sense of having aided, countenanced and abetted a grievous wrong. Both Jew and Gentile left Calvary that evening heavy-hearted, self-condemned, and ill at ease. Great, indeed, is the power of conscience. Mighty is the influence which it is able to exercise on the hearts of men. It can strike terror into the minds of monarchs on their thrones. It can make multitudes tremble and shake before a few bold friends of truth like a flock of sheep. Blind and mistaken as conscience often is, unable to convert a man or lead him to Christ, it is still a most blessed part of man's constitution and the best friend in the congregation that the preacher of the gospel has. No wonder that Paul says, by manifestation of the truth, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience. 2 Corinthians 4, 2 He that desires inward peace must beware of quarreling with his conscience. Let him rather use it well, guard it jealously, hear what it has to say, and reckon it his friend. Above all, let him pray daily that his conscience may be enlightened by the Holy Spirit and cleansed by the blood of Christ. The words of John are very significant. If our heart condemns us not, then have we confidence toward God. 1 John 3.21 The man is doing well who can say, I exercise myself to have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. Acts 24, 16.
You're listening to an international edition of Nightlight, shining God's love light to the world. Luke chapter 23, verses 50 through 56. And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and a just. The same had not consented to the council and deed of them. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went unto Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulchre that was hewn in stone, wherein never man before was laid. And that day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew on. And the women also, which came with him from Galilee, followed after and beheld the sepulchre and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments and rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. We see from these verses that Christ has some disciples of whom little is known. We're told of one Joseph, a good man and a just, a man who had not consented to the counsel of those who condemned our Lord, a man who himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went boldly to Pilate after the crucifixion, begged the body of Jesus, took it down from the cross, and laid it in a tomb. We know nothing of Joseph excepting what is here told us. In no part of the Acts or Epistles do we find any mention of his name. At no former period of our Lord's ministry does he ever come forward. His reason for not openly joining the disciples before we cannot explain. But here, at the eleventh hour, this man is not afraid to show himself one of our Lord's friends. At the very time when the apostles had forsaken Jesus, Joseph is not ashamed to show his love and respect. Others had confessed him while he was living and doing miracles. It was reserved for Joseph to confess him when he was dead. The history of Joseph is full of instruction and encouragement. It shows us that Christ has friends of whom the church knows little or nothing. Friends who profess less than some do, but friends who in real love and affection are second to none. It shows us, above all, that events may bring out grace in quarters where at present we do not expect it and that the cause of Christ may prove one day to have many supporters of whose existence we are at present not aware. These are they whom David calls hidden ones, and Solomon compares to a lily among thorns. Psalm 83.3, Song of Solomon 2.2 Let us learn from the case of Joseph of Arimathea to be charitable and hopeful in our judgments. All is not barren in this world when our eyes perhaps see nothing. There may be some latent sparks of light when all appears dark. Little plants of spiritual life may be existing in some remote Romish or Greek or Armenian congregations which the Father himself has planted. Grains of true faith may be lying hid in some neglected English parish which have been placed there by God. There were 7,000 true worshippers in Israel of whom Elijah knew nothing. 
The day of judgment will bring forward men who seemed last and place them among the first. 1 Kings 19, 18. We see secondly from these verses the reality of Christ's death. This is a fact that's placed beyond dispute by the circumstances related about his burial. Those who took his body from the cross and wrapped it in linen could not have been deceived. Their own senses must have been witness to the fact that he whom they handled was a corpse. Their own hands and eyes must have told them that he whom they laid in Joseph's sepulchre was not alive, but dead. The importance of the fact before us is far greater than a careless reader supposes. If Christ did not really die, there would be an end of all the comfort of the gospel. Nothing short of his death could have paid man's debt to God. His incarnation and sermons and parables and miracles and sinless obedience to the law would have availed nothing if he had not died. The penalty threatened to the first Adam was death eternal in hell. If the second Adam had not really and actually died in our stead, as well as taught us truth, the original penalty would have continued in full force against Adam and all his children. It was the lifeblood of Christ which was to save our souls. Forever let us bless God, that our great Redeemer's death is a fact beyond all dispute. The centurion who stood by the cross, the friends who took out the nails and laid the body in the grave, the women who stood by and beheld, the priests who sealed up the grave, the soldiers who guarded the sepulchre, all, all are witnesses that Jesus actually was dead. The great sacrifice was really offered. The life of the Lamb was actually taken away. The penalty due to sin has actually been discharged by our own divine substitute. Sinners believing in Jesus may hope and not be afraid. In themselves, they are guilty. But Christ has died for the ungodly, and their debt is now completely paid. The light is always on with Nightlight. Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulchre, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulchre. And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. 
Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words, and returned from the sepulchre, and told all these things unto the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and other women that were with them, which told these things unto the apostles. And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Then arose Peter, and ran unto the sepulchre, and stooping down he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves, and departed, wondering in himself at that which was come to pass. The resurrection of Christ is one of the great foundation stones of the Christian religion. In practical importance, it is second only to the crucifixion. The chapter we have now begun directs our mind to the evidence of the resurrection. It contains unanswerable proof that Jesus not only died, but rose again. We see in the verses before us the reality of Christ's resurrection. We read that upon the first day of the week, certain women came to the tomb in which the body of Jesus had been laid in order to anoint him. But when they came to the place, they found the stone rolled away, and they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. This simple fact is the starting point in the history of the resurrection of Christ. On Friday morning, his body was safe in the tomb. On Sunday morning, his body was gone. By whose hands had it been taken away? Who had removed it? Not surely the priests and scribes and the other enemies of Christ. If they had had Christ's body to show in disproof of his resurrection, they would have gladly shown it. Not the apostles and other disciples of our Lord. They were far too much frightened and dispirited to attempt such an action, and the more so when they had nothing to gain by it. One explanation, and one only, can meet the circumstance of the case. That explanation is the one supplied by the angels in the verse before us. Christ had risen from the grave. To seek him in the sepulchre was seeking the living among the dead. He had risen again, and was soon seen alive and conversing in the body of many credible witnesses. The fact of our Lord's resurrection rests on evidence which no infidel can ever explain away. It is confirmed by testimony of every kind, sort, and description. The plain, unvarnished story which the Gospel writers tell about it is one that cannot be overthrown. The more the account they give is examined, the more inexplicable will the event appear, unless we accept it as true. If we choose to deny the truth of their account, we may deny everything in the world. It is not so certain that Julius Caesar once lived, as it is that Christ rose again. Let us cling firmly to the resurrection of Christ as one of the pillars of the gospel. It ought to produce in our minds a settled conviction of the truth of Christianity. 
Our faith does not depend merely on a set of texts and doctrines. It is founded on a mighty historical fact which the skeptic has never been able to overturn. It ought to assure us of the certainty of the resurrection of our own bodies after death. If our master has arisen from the grave, we need not doubt that his disciples shall rise again at the last day. Above all, it ought to fill our hearts with a joyful sense of the fullness of gospel salvation. Who is he that shall condemn us? Our great surety has not only died for us, but risen again. Romans 8.34 He has gone to prison for us and come forth triumphantly after atoning for our sins. The payment he made for us has been accepted. The work of satisfaction has been perfectly accomplished. No wonder that Peter exclaims, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter 1, 3. We see, secondly, in the verses before us, how dull the memory of the disciples was about some of our Lord's teachings. We're told that the angels who appeared to the women reminded them of their master's words in Galilee, foretelling his own crucifixion and resurrection. And then we read, they remembered his words. They had heard them, but made no use of them. Now, after many days, they call them to mind. This dullness of memory is a common spiritual disease among believers. It prevails as widely now as it did in the days of the first disciples. It is one among many proofs of our fallen and corrupt condition. Even after men have been renewed by the Holy Spirit, their readiness to forget the promises and precepts of the gospel is continually bringing them into trouble. They hear many things which they ought to store up in their hearts, but seem to forget as fast as they hear. And then, perhaps, after many days, affliction brings them up before their recollection, and at once it flashes across their minds that they heard them long ago. They find that they had heard, but heard in vain. The true cure for dull memory in religion is to get deeper love toward Christ and affections more thoroughly set on things above. We do not readily forget the things we love and the objects which we keep continually under our eyes. The names of our parents and children are always remembered. The face of the husband or wife we love is engraved on the tablets of our hearts. The more our affections are engaged in Christ's service, the more easy shall we find it to remember Christ's words. The words of the apostle ought to be carefully pondered we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Hebrews 2, 1. We see lastly 
how slow of belief the first disciples were on the subject of Christ's resurrection. We read that when the women returned from the sepulchre and told the things that they had heard from the angels to the eleven apostles, their words seemed to them idle tales, and they believed them not. In spite of the plainest declarations from their master's own lips that he would rise again the third day, in spite of the distinct testimony of five or six credible witnesses that the sepulchre was empty and that the angels had told them that he was risen, in spite of the manifest impossibility of accounting for the empty tomb on any other supposition than that of a miraculous resurrection. In spite of all this, these eleven faithless ones would not believe. Perhaps we marvel at their unbelief. No doubt it seems at first sight most senseless, most unreasonable, most provoking, most unaccountable. But shall we not do well to look at home? Do we not see around us in the Christian churches a mass of unbelief, far more unreasonable and far more blameworthy than that of the apostles? Do we not see after 18 centuries of additional proofs that Christ has risen from the dead, a general lack of faith which is truly deplorable? Do we not see myriads of professing Christians who seem not to believe that Jesus died and rose again and is coming to judge the world? These are painful questions. Strong faith is indeed a rare thing. No wonder that our Lord said, When the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on the earth? Luke 18, 8. Finally, let us admire the wisdom of God, which can bring great good out of seeming evil. The unbelief of the apostles is one of the strongest indirect evidences that Jesus rose from the dead. If the disciples were at first so backward to believe our Lord's resurrection and were at last so thoroughly persuaded of its truth that they preached it everywhere, Christ must have risen indeed. The first preachers were men who were convinced in spite of themselves and in spite of determined, obstinate unwillingness to believe. If the apostles at last believed, the resurrection must be true. that brings us to the end of part three of this special Easter edition of Nightlight. Still have part four to go as we finish up the stories from Luke chapter 24. Thanks so much to Michael Listen for the heavenly instrumental music that complemented the readings as well as Daniel Sozzi. We've time to go out with a song related to the Easter theme and what better one than this from Christy Gibson of her album Blessed Assurance, a classic hymn you can sing along with. I'll be back soon with part four of Nightlight's Easter special, and I'm looking forward to it. Happy Easter, and God bless.
far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. How I love that old cross with the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. Oh, I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday. Trophies at last I.